Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Nefarious. For those of you who are new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Butchie and I am a student at Arizona State University currently studying criminal justice and forensic psychology. This podcast is a part of my final thesis project for both of my undergraduate degrees and if you have not already, I do suggest going back and listening to the very first episode of this podcast just because it offers a little bit more of an introduction of who I am and exactly what it is this project is all about. So in looking at today's episode, I think it's going to be a very interesting one for many of you and you may have some background knowledge because it is a pretty well-known case. Um, But for the academic portion of this episode, we're going to be looking more closely at just kind of my coursework that I have taken for my forensic psychology degree, which we'll still be covering true crimes. My criminal justice background is there as well, but it is going to be more heavily forensic psychology based for that last portion of the podcast. So when deciding who to cover for this case and what sort of crimes that I wanted to look at, I thought that with the recent release of the Netflix drama miniseries, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, as well as the docuseries, Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes, that Jeffrey Dahmer would be a rather interesting case to cover, just because I know that a lot of people have recently watched both of these things or one of these things, and so it kind of already gives you guys that background knowledge of what it is we're going to be talking about and what it is we're going to be looking at. But with that being said... These crimes committed by Jeffrey Dahmer are absolutely gruesome and not for the faint of the heart or the faint of the stomach, to be completely honest. So as part of this case, we do discuss body mutilation, necrophilia, and there is a brief mention of cannibalism. So if any of these themes for any reason serve as triggers for you, I would suggest just skipping this episode and maybe going back and listening to some of the other cases that I've already covered that are less gruesome than this one or Stick around and see what else we have coming on later. But with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into this episode. So all of the information pertaining to Dahmer's childhood and his early adulthood, so like his life before his crimes, comes from Brian Masters' book, The Shrine of Jeffrey Dahmer. So Jeffrey Dahmer was born on May 21st, 1960 to his parents Lionel and Joyce Dahmer. Very early on in his childhood, Jeffrey was exposed to his mother's mental illness and her struggle with addiction, as well as just like the general downfall of his parents' marriage and the relationship that they had with one another that was quite unstable. His mother was often bedridden due to either her mental illness or she would often take sleeping pills as a way to cope with the mental illness. So she was often away or in bed due to either the mental illness itself or the way that she was coping with the her illness. Jeffrey's father also was away often as he threw himself into his work as a means to avoid his home life and avoid his unstable relationship with Joyce. So he was often gone at the office or at the lab. He was a chemist, so he would often be at the lab. So with both of his parents being quite absent, Dahmer was left on his own quite often, which led to early feelings of neglect and abandonment. When reading about Dahmer's childhood, one notable experience that Jeffrey recounted that he like remembered very vividly from his childhood was when he was around the age of five and his father, or he, it's kind of said both, found a dead animal and some animal bones in the crawl space of their home. Jeffrey Dahmer was absolutely fascinated by these bones. He um, would 
he would often clink them together to hear the sounds they made or like throw them on the ground. He was just obsessed with this as like a toy for him. This fascination with the bones was kind of one of the only real interests that Dahmer stuck with throughout his childhood and his early adulthood. As he grew older, he would perform experiments with the bones. So he would like bleach the bones with chemicals and then further preserve them in like formaldehyde and that kind of thing. So it went from just like playing with them and the noises to him to like experimenting with them and doing other things. At the time, this was like quite an innocent sort of hobby just because he was so young and then his dad was a chemist. So it kind of made sense like where he was going with this. But in retrospect, Many people look back on this experience and many wonder if Dahmer's future crimes could be tied back to this kind of fascination that was not something most kids had. When Dahmer got a little older and started elementary school, this was when his personality, or lack thereof, was largely noticed by others, um, mostly his teachers as well as some of the other children in his classes. But Dahmer was described as very shy and withdrawn, and he was often found isolating himself from the other children and just kind of like failed to make any sort of relationships or friendships or any of those kind of like foundational interactions with other kids. In his early teen years, Dahmer never really engaged in any sort of hobby or group activity. He never really found any sort of like group of friends to surround himself with and he found that any friendship that he did make was very superficial and those people that he claimed to be friends with just just kind of served as like a means to an end for him. Dahmer's more isolated and reserved personality was not something that just occurred at school or around other kids his age but it also occurred at home. As we mentioned with his parents' unstable relationship and just kind of like their marriage breaking down here and there Dahmer tried to do his best to stay quiet and stay out of the way he thought that his parents already had enough to deal with with their relationship with one another and he didn't want to add any stress to what it was they were already going through and so he just kind of tried to stay out of the way be quiet just like do what he needed to do to go by unnoticed At the age of 14, Dahmer actually started drinking, and it was said to be that this was a way for him to kind of cope with this loneliness he was experiencing both at home and while at school. With this drinking, Dahmer started to care a lot less about his academics. He slowly became like the class clown figure, like he would do anything he could to embarrass himself or become the center of attention, just kind of any way to gain attention from those of his peers. Around the same time was when Dahmer began to come to terms with his sexuality. Uh, he did identify as a homosexual male. And along with this, like, coming to terms with his sexuality, Dahmer also kind of, like, began to showcase this. Like, it was at that age where he was becoming more aware of his body and his feelings. And so it was said that this is when he would begin masturbating on a daily basis, which I know doesn't seem very important. Like, why include that detail? But it will come up later on once we see like the sexual fascination that he had and how they were linked to his crimes. When he was 16 years old, Dahmer and his class actually went to a field trip to the Anatomical Museum in Cleveland. So this experience, along with his compulsive masturbation, kind of paved the way to Jeffrey's first deviant sexual fantasy. So this fantasy included a jogger that would often run by Dahmer's home, and it specifically accounted how Dahmer would wait for the jogger to pass by he would hit him with a baseball bat knock him unconscious and then explore his body without him ever knowing 
The following day, Dahmer actually did find himself sitting on the side of the road with his baseball bat waiting, but by the grace of God and luckily for this jogger, the jogger actually never came that day. In 1978, at the age of 18, Dahmer's parents actually finally filed for divorce. In this divorce, Joyce, his mother, was granted custody of Jeff's younger brother, David, as well as ownership of the house that they lived in in Ohio. Jeffrey was also supposed to stay with Joyce and his younger brother, but soon after his father moved out, his mother actually took David and left, and they left Dahmer completely unsupervised for months before his father found out what had happened and moved back in. During this time when Dahmer was unsupervised, plus um, just continuing after the fact when his father found him, he fell a lot deeper into his alcohol use. Um, He was often drunk all day, every day, as often as he could be. And his father noticed this when he came home, and his father actually intervened and enrolled him in classes at Ohio State University. But Dahmer, going to school and living in the dorms, he became unsupervised once more, and he would find himself getting drunk rather than going to class, which led to him failing all of his classes and dropping out after only one semester. At this point, Dahmer's father saw that, like, his son still needed help, something still needed to be done. If school wasn't the answer, he decided that enlisting Dahmer in the army would be the answer. However, after just two years of his three years that he was supposed to do, Dahmer was actually discharged from the army for excessive alcohol drinking. So once again, Dahmer's father was completely unsure of what to do or how to help his son. He tried everything that he could possibly think of, but at this point, he just basically didn't want to deal with it himself anymore. And so he sent Dahmer to go live with his grandmother in Milwaukee, where if you're familiar with this case, as we all know, that's where things only got worse. So now we're going to be talking more about Dahmer and his specific crimes that he committed. And most of this information comes from Ann Schwartz, who was actually the Milwaukee Journal reporter who broke this case initially. And she wrote about the crimes and her experience in the book, The Man Who Could Not Kill Enough, The Secret Murders of Milwaukee's Jeffrey Dahmer. I found this book to be really interesting just because of the role that Schwartz had in like the entirety of the case and the breaking of the case. And we'll get into it later, but she talks about some of her like firsthand experiences with the crime scene and just all that kind of stuff. And so I thought it was really interesting just to see this like firsthand point of view of what happened during that time. So getting into... Dahmer and his crimes. Upon his arrest and during his police interviews, Dahmer actually confessed to murdering 17 men, with 16 of those killings occurring during just a three and a half year period between 1987 and 1991. However, Dahmer's first murder actually occurred on June 18, 1978, during his time that he was left alone at his home following his parents' divorce, and he murdered his first victim, who was named Stephen Hicks. So Hicks was an 18-year-old hitchhiker who Dahmer had picked up under the impression that he would drive Hicks wherever he needed to go, but first he persuaded Hicks to come back to his house with him and to have a drink. The two did go back to Dahmer's house where they supposedly got drunk and then had sex. All seemed to be going fine until Hicks got up and said that he was ready to leave, and Dahmer decided he did not want Hicks to leave. So he reached for the barbell and struck Hicks in the back of the head, which ended up killing him. Dahmer then proceeded to masturbate over the corpse of Hicks before he dragged the body into the crawlspace under his house, dismembered it with a knife, and placed the parts into plastic bags, which were later buried in the backyard. 
When Dahmer returned from the army about three years later, he actually dug up these bags, broke up the bones with a sledgehammer, and scattered the remains throughout the woods. So over nine years later is when Dahmer decides it's time to kill again, and this is where we see the start of his three-year crime spree. So on November 20th, 1987, Dahmer killed his second known victim, Stephen Tiomi. The two met at a gay club, Club 219, which is in Milwaukee, and they proceeded to leave together, and they ended up getting drunk and staying at a nearby hotel. Dahmer says that he woke up the following morning, and he found Tiomi dead, but had absolutely no recollection of what had happened the night prior. At this point, Dahmer left the hotel and returned with a large suitcase, which he put the corpse inside and then transported back to his grandmother's house. He brought the suitcase down to the basement, where he then proceeded to have sex with the corpse, masturbate over the corpse, sliced the flesh off of the corpse, and dismembered the remains and threw them out in the trash. Two months later, on January 16, 1988, Dahmer murdered 14-year-old Jamie Doxtater. Dahmer also met Jamie outside of the Club 219 in Milwaukee, and he invited him back to his grandmother's place on the promise that he would pay him to model for some photographs. So as we go through the rest of these crimes, as you will quickly find out, this offering of money in exchange for photographs or sex or companionship, whatever you want to call it, it became Dahmer's way of luring in nearly every single one of his, his victims. So it might seem a little repetitive, but it's just part of the case and it's part of each of these interactions. And so I think it's important just to continue to reiterate that. But once Dahmer and Doc's hater got back to his grandmother's house, the two proceeded to have sex. And then Dahmer offered Doc's hater a drink that actually contained crushed up sleeping pills. So after Doc's hater fell asleep due to these sleeping pills, Dahmer then strangled him to death. Dahmer then took the body into the basement where he dismembered the corpse with a knife and crushed the bones with a sledgehammer. He then placed all of their remains in trash bags and threw them out with the trash. On March 24, 1988, Dahmer met Richard Guerrero at another gay bar in Milwaukee, not Club 219, but a different one, where he also propositioned him to come home with him to take pictures, get drunk, and have sex. Once they went back to his grandmother's house, Dahmer drugged Guerrero with sleeping pills and proceeded to strangle him to death. Dahmer then had sex with the corpse, masturbated over the body, and dismembered and disposed of the corpse as he had done before. A year later, on March 25, 1989, Dahmer returned to the gay bars of Milwaukee where he met Anthony Sears. Once again, Dahmer invited Sears back to his grandmother's place to take pictures, which actually turned into the two men having sex, Dahmer drugging Sears' drink with sleeping pills, and then strangling him to death. Dahmer then proceeded to have sex with the corpse before dismembering and disposing of it. However, one thing that escalated this murder and kind of differentiated it from those before was that Dahmer actually kept the head of the corpse this time, um, to which he boiled to remove the skin and then kept as a trophy, to which he said that he would often masturbate in front of. Another year later, in May of 1990, Dahmer actually moved into his own apartment in Milwaukee, where once again, if you're familiar with this case, it is where he would brutally murder 12 more men and also eventually get caught for his crimes. On May 20th, 1990, Dahmer met 33-year-old Ricky Beeks at Club 219, where he invited him back to his apartment, offering him money to take photographs, get drunk, and watch videos. Once back at his apartment, Dahmer drugged Beeks' drink and then proceeded to strangle him to death. After he strangled Beeks, he then performed oral sex with the corpse and dismembered the body, once again keeping the skull as a trophy. 
Just a few weeks later, in June, Dahmer met 28-year-old Eddie Smith at one of the gay bars in Milwaukee, and he offered him money in exchange for nude pictures and sex. The two went back to Dahmer's apartment, where they were said to have engaged in oral sex before Dahmer drugged Smith's drink and then strangled him to death. Dahmer once again dismembered the corpse, but this time he did take Polaroid pictures of this process before actually disposing of the corpse in trash bags in the apartment dumpsters. About two months later, in September of 1990, Dahmer met 22-year-old Ernest Miller outside of an adult bookshop in Milwaukee. Once again, Dahmer offered Miller money to come back to his apartment with him, where he then took numerous photographs of Miller in various sexual poses before having sex with him. After the two men had sex with one another, Dahmer then drugged Miller's drink, which caused him to pass out, but what followed was much more gruesome than his previous murders. Like This is where we see Dahmer kind of escalate and where we see the gruesomeness and the pure violence that we know him for today. So after Miller was drugged and passed out, Dahmer took a hunting knife and sliced his throat. He then placed the corpse in a bathtub and proceeded to dismember it with the said knife. Dahmer recounts removing the flesh from the corpse and disposing of it in the trash. He also stated that he kept the skull with the others that he had collected, and he bleached the skeleton, keeping it as an additional trophy in his closet. Dahmer photographed the entirety of this process and kept all of those as keepsakes as well. However, most notably and most disturbing was that Dahmer kept Miller's biceps and he actually stored them in the freezer. During police interviews, Dahmer admitted that he had been wanting to try cannibalism and that he did actually eat those biceps that he had saved. Dahmer was also said to be very tight-lipped on this topic and he would not say much more on the subject past the fact that these were the only body parts that he had ever eaten. That same month, Dahmer met 22-year-old David Thomas outside of a gay bar in Milwaukee, where he once again offered him money to come back to his apartment and drink with him. The two did go back to the apartment and drink with one another, but they did not end up having sex. Despite this, Dahmer did also drug Thomas's drink and then murdered him, dismembering his body and disposing of it. Dahmer actually kept no biological trophies of this killing, but he did photograph the process of dismemberment and kept those as trophies or keepsakes or whatever you want to call them. Over four months later, on February 18th, 1991, Dahmer met 18-year-old Curtis Strotter while he was waiting for the bus on campus of Marquette University, which just happened to be about a few blocks away from Dahmer's apartment in Milwaukee. Dahmer offered Strotter money for him to come back to his apartment, where Dahmer then proceeded to drug him, strangle him, and dismember the corpse. Dahmer also took photographs of the entirety of this process, and he also kept the skull as a trophy of this killing. Two months following, on April 7, 1991, Dahmer met 19-year-old Errol Lindsay outside of a key shop in Milwaukee, which once again was just two blocks down from Dahmer's apartment. He offered Lindsay money in exchange for him coming back to his apartment, where Dahmer then drugged him, strangled him, and proceeded to have oral sex with the corpse. Dahmer also dismembered this corpse and kept the skull as yet another trophy. The following month, Dahmer returned to the gay club scene, where on the night of May 24th, 1991, he met 31-year-old Tony Hughes. Dahmer offered Hughes money if he came back to his apartment to pose for some photographs and watch some videos with him. However, as we know and as it's become routine at this point, Dahmer then drugged Hughes' drink, murdered and dismembered him, and kept his skull with those of his previous victims. Just three days later, on May 27, 1991, Dahmer murdered 14-year-old Conorak Synthesymphone. 
This murder absolutely shook the city of Milwaukee once Dahmer was caught and the details of this crime were released because the young boy had actually escaped Dahmer's apartment and was returned to Dahmer's apartment by Milwaukee police officers. We'll get into that more in detail in just a second, but we'll start from the beginning. So earlier in the day, Dahmer met Conorak at the mall where he offered him money to come home with him and pose for some pictures. Once at the apartment, Conorak posed for a couple of photographs in his underwear before Dahmer ultimately drugged him and had oral sex with his body while he was alive but unconscious. At this point, Dahmer had run out of beer and left Conorak at his apartment while he went to go retrieve more. But upon his return, he realized that Conorak had actually woken up and fled. These details come from a neighbor who was interviewed extensively after everything came out about the entirety of Dahmer's crimes as well as what occurred this night. So the neighbor said that she noticed Conorak running down the street naked and she called the police. Once the police had arrived, they noticed that Conorak was wrapped up in a blanket that the neighbor lady had offered him. And then Dahmer, who had returned from the store while all of this was happening, just kind of stood off nearby. When asked about what was happening in this situation and what was going on, Dahmer told the officers that Conorak was his house guest, who just kind of had a little too much to drink, and that explained his state of uncertainty. Like, he was drugged, so he clearly was not all there, but Dahmer told the police that it was because he was drinking rather than the truth. Dahmer also claimed that Conorak was 19 years old rather than 14 years old, which just kind of gave the officers this impression that this was more of just like a domestic situation and it was something that these two needed to handle on their own rather than require police intervention. So with that in mind, the officers escorted both Dahmer and Conorak back to Dahmer's apartment where they took a brief look around the apartment and then left. They just left Conorak there with Dahmer. But what was even more disturbing is that once more information came out about this night after Dahmer was caught for his crimes, Dahmer's previous victim's decomposing body was laying on the bed in his bedroom while the police were in the apartment. How? How do you search an apartment and not find a dead body? I, it's absolutely, that, it's insane. At this point, police officers noted that Conorak was conscious but unresponsive during the entirety of their interaction, but he also showed absolutely no desire to leave the apartment and showed no outward fear towards Dahmer. Which is why the officers involved say that they left him there and they went about their business. However, once the officers left, Dahmer strangled the boy to death and had sex with the corpse before taking even more photographs, dismembering the body, and keeping the skull as yet another trophy. On June 30th, 1991, after attending a parade in Chicago, Dahmer met 20-year-old Matt Turner and offered him money to go back to his apartment and pose nude for some photographs and watch some videos. The two men returned to Milwaukee and to Dahmer's apartment, where Dahmer then drugged Turner and strangled him to death. Dahmer then once again dismembered his body, but this time is where we see yet another escalation into kind of like his routine or what we are seeing with his crimes, because he actually kept the head in a bag in his freezer and placed the rest of the body into a big blue barrel that he kept in the corner of his room. Less than a week later, on July 5th, 1991, Dahmer returned to Chicago, where he met 23-year-old Jeremiah Weinberger at a gay club in the city. Dahmer once again offered Weinberger money for him to come home with him to his apartment back in Milwaukee, to which Weinberger agreed, and the two men returned to Wisconsin. 
This specific victim was a little bit different than Dahmer's other victims because he actually stayed the night at Dahmer's house and he woke up the next morning. Like, he survived the night in Dahmer's apartment. So upon returning from Chicago, the two men engaged in oral sex and then went to sleep. They then woke up the next day and Turner was actually preparing to leave, which is when Dahmer convinced him to stay for a drink. And as you could guess, the drink was drugged which caused Turner to pass out, fall asleep, and then Dahmer proceeded to strangle him to death. Once again, Dahmer dismembered the body, photographing the entire process, and he placed the head in a bag in a freezer and the rest of the body in the blue barrel in his bedroom. Just over a week later, on July 15, 1991, Dahmer saw Oliver Lacey on the corner outside his apartment building and offered him money to pose for photographs. Once inside his building, the two men gave each other massages or body rubs, but as per his routine, Dahmer then drugged Lacey and strangled him. Dahmer dismembered the body, this time placing the head in the refrigerator rather than the freezer and keeping the heart in the freezer, and once again placing the rest of the body in the blue barrel. Dahmer's last known murder occurred on July 19, 1991, when he met 25-year-old Joseph Braidhoff at a bus stop and offered him money to pose for photographs or watch videos back at his apartment. The two men engaged in oral sex before Dahmer drugged Braidhoff's drink and struggled him as he slept. Once again, Dahmer dismembered the body, placed the head in the freezer, and the rest of the remains in the blue barrel. Jeffrey Dahmer was caught and his murder spree came to an end just three days later on July 22, 1991, After his next potential victim, Tracy Edwards, escaped Dahmer's apartment and went straight to the police. So as Tracy recounts, Dahmer had actually invited him over to his apartment for a party, but upon arriving, no one else was to be seen and he found himself to be alone with Dahmer. Dahmer led Edwards into his bedroom where he handcuffed him to the bed, turned on a movie, and then proceeded to rub a hunting knife across Edwards' chest. Somehow, someway, it's not really said in any of the interviews that I saw, but Edwards was able to free himself of the restraints where he then punched Dahmer in the face, kicked him in the chest, and fled the apartment. Upon fleeing the apartment, Edwards actually encountered two police officers, Robert Routh and Rolf Mueller, who were sitting in their squad car just kind of hanging out waiting for the shift to end. It was around the time when shifts changed, so they were just kind of there to be there, just kind of killing time. Both officers said that they'd noticed the handcuff dangling from Edward's wrist, and after initially hearing what he was describing, they thought it was just kind of like a sexual encounter gone wrong. So kind of as we saw with like the whole Conorak incident, the officers didn't think that it was their place to get involved. However, Edwards persisted that it was much more than that, and it actually led the officers to Dahmer's apartment. As the officers recount, upon immediately approaching the apartment, they noticed a rancid odor that just only worsened as Dahmer opened the door and let the officers inside of his apartment. The officers asked Dahmer to retrieve the key to the handcuffs so that they could free Edwards and, like I said, just kind of move on with their night. They were close to being done with their shift. They were just ready to go. So they thought if they just got the key, freed Edwards from the handcuffs, they could go along their way. But then Edwards spoke up and mentioned a knife that Dahmer had threatened him with earlier in the evening and told the officer that he would find that in the bedroom as well. Also, Officer Mueller told Dahmer to stay put as he entered the bedroom in search of the knife, but he actually ended up finding so much more. While he was in the bedroom, Mueller discovered a drawer full of Polaroid pictures, which, as you probably know from what I've mentioned as we've documented each of these crimes, 
these pictures showcase Dahmer's victims and their dismemberment and every step of the process of what he has been doing for the past three years. Officer Mueller quickly yelled to his partner that this was much more serious than they had originally thought. Dahmer, hearing this and realizing he had been caught, he quickly turned violent towards Officer Routh, but Officer Routh then ended up pinning Dahmer to the floor and placing him in handcuffs. At this point, Mueller emerged from the bedroom, and why he walked into the kitchen isn't really said, or I wasn't able to find anything about it, but he walked into the kitchen and he opened the fridge, and that's when he discovered the decapitated head of one of Dahmer's victims, and that is when these officers realized, like, just how bad this was like this wasn't just simply like that's when they realized that this was going to be a crime of the century or a crime that no one had ever seen before no one had ever heard before so uh, ann schwartz as i mentioned earlier since she was a longtime reporter and she had this kind of relationship with the police already and just kind of like knew those on the force like they already they all knew her as well she was actually allowed on the crime scene and got to see different things firsthand just kind of saw got to see everything that the officers had seen basically so in her book she documents what this was like for her like what some of the different things that she saw were so she says that in the closet there were various pots and jars filled with hands and male genitalia as well as some skulls that were just sitting on the closet shelves she noticed the top dresser drawer which was the same one that officer Mueller had found which contained over 30 Polaroid pictures showcasing Dahmer's victims in various sexual poses while alive, some stage poses that happened after they were dead, and many that showed the bodies in various stages of dismemberment. She also says that two more skulls were found in a computer box, and three more were located in the top drawer of a filing cabinet. And then, of course, in the corner of the room was the ominous blue barrel that contained a chemical bath filled with decomposing bodies. Sarah Kettler, in her article, What Was Jeffrey Dahmer's Murder Trial Like?, provides the details on exactly that, and this is where most of the following information comes from. If you are really interested in this case and the trial, um, just kind of like the more legal aspect of it, CourtTV.com actually has an entire archive of the footage inside the courtroom that you can watch. I personally did not watch it in its entirety, but the parts that I did watch were actually super interesting. And I think it provides like a really interesting and a really good insight into like the legal proceedings that occurred and just kind of more of that side of things. So if that interests you, I would recommend taking a look at it. Jeffrey Dahmer was charged with 15 counts of murder in the state of Wisconsin. And on September 10th, 1991, he pled not guilty. However, later on January 13th, 1992, he actually changed his plea to guilty by reason of insanity. As maybe you realized when I mentioned earlier that Dahmer confessed to killing 17 men, but he was only charged for 15 of these accounts of murder, there's two reasons why this happened. So the first was that the body of his second victim had actually never been found, and so the prosecutors in Wisconsin did not want to try him for a case where they didn't really have any physical evidence linking him to that victim. And then the second reason was that his first murder took place in Ohio, and therefore Dahmer would need to be charged for that crime in Ohio which he later was, and he was found guilty of that crime. So with his change of plea from not guilty to guilty by reason of insanity, the trial changed from a determination of guilt or innocence to a determination of Dahmer's state of mind at the times of these crimes. 
It also created a change in the verdict requirement. So rather than the verdict requirement needing to be unanimous, it just now needed to be a 10 out of 12 majority. So by the state of Wisconsin, their definition of legal insanity is that at the time of the crime, the defendant, due to mental disease or defect, lacks substantial capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of their conduct or lacks substantial capacity to conform their conduct to the requirements of the law. So on February 15, 1992, the jury declared that they did not believe the defendant, Jeffrey Dahmer, to be mentally ill, simply stating that they believed he was guilty of these crimes and that he maintained a quote-unquote stable mental state during the commission of the crimes. Just two days later, on February 17, 1992, Dahmer was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences. However, just over two and a half years into his sentence, on November 28, 1994, Dahmer was actually beaten to death by a fellow inmate of the prison. So when looking at Jeffrey Dahmer, his upbringing, his crimes, his trial, his plea of insanity, forensic psychologists have a ton of information that they could analyze. Without extensive education, background knowledge, and forensic evaluation, there is no way to determine if Dahmer's personality or his potential mental illnesses contributed to the commission of his crimes. Even with such information, there is no way to definitively say why Dahmer did what he did. Forensic psychologists can just simply lend their expertise to providing an opinion on how certain attributes may have affected his behavior, but it's nothing set in stone. So when looking at Dahmer's persona, there are a few obvious things of note. So one, he was an alcoholic and he suffered severely from a substance abuse. Two, he had deviant sexual fantasies and was classified as a necrophile. And then three, he suffered from various mood, affective, and personality disorders, which we'll later get into some more specifics of those. As decided during his trial, though, none of these things served as an excuse for Dahmer's criminal behavior. But with this discussion and this podcast, they may be able to lend more insight into like the grander scheme of this case. So most of this information for these various diagnoses comes from the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is also known as the DSM-5. So to start, we're going to be talking about Dahmer's alcohol use disorder. So alcohol use disorder, or more commonly referred to as alcoholism, refers to the problematic pattern of alcohol consumption that leads to significant impairment or stress and is manifested through various listed mechanisms. So some of these mechanisms, the ones that most closely relate to Dahmer and to his life, is the recurrent use of alcohol leading to failure to fulfill work, school, or home duties, the continued use of alcohol despite facing these social and interpersonal problems, and the persistent desire to consume alcohol or the unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use. So as we mentioned earlier, Dahmer started drinking alcohol at the age of 14, well before it was legal for him to do so. As we know, the drinking age is 21 here in the United States. And he continued to do so until he was caught for his crimes at the age of 31 years old. So that's about 17 years that he was drinking alcohol. This pattern of alcohol consumption severely affected his relationship with his family, most notably his father, and it did heavily interfere with his educational and occupational duties. So Dahmer always kind of had a somewhat strained relationship with his father, but it became even more so strained when Dahmer was drinking heavily and his father was unsure how to help him. It just kind of distanced them even more than they already were. 
As we saw, this alcohol consumption also impacted his schooling because his grades fell in high school when he started drinking at the age of 14, but then he also dropped out of college due to spending his time drunk rather than spending his time in class. When looking at how it affected his occupational duties, as we also mentioned earlier, Dahmer was discharged from the military due to his excessive alcohol use. I think another key piece to note when talking about this alcohol use problem was that the majority of Dahmer's crimes occurred while he was intoxicated, and he almost always used alcohol as a way to lure his victims back to his apartment. Also noted through Dahmer's criminal behavior was his deviant sexual urges. So once again, according to the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, any intense and persistent sexual interest outside of the socially normative definition of sexual behavior can be defined as a paraphilia. So a paraphilic disorder, then, is a paraphilia that causes distress or impairment to the individual or entails personal harm or risk of harm to others. So Dahmer's most notable paraphilia was his necrophilic tendencies. So necrophilia is most basically defined as the sexual attraction to or sexual involvement with a corpse. And it can be further broken down into a couple more specific categories, with the four main ones being pseudo-necrophiles, necrophilic fantasizers, regular necrophiles, and homicidal necrophiles. So pseudo-necrophiles are those that engage in sexual roleplay acts where they are aroused by their partner pretending to be dead during sexual activity. Necrophilic fantasizers are those who fantasize about having sex with the corpse, but they never actually do it. Regular necrophiles are people who prefer to engage in sexual activity with a corpse over a live human. And then homicidal necrophiles are the most dangerous as they are the ones who commit murder in order to engage in sexual activity with the corpse. So when connecting this to Dahmer, we see that he started off as a necrophilic fantasizer. This is most notable with his fantasy that he had about the jogger running by his house. But with the progression of his behavior and of his tendencies, it can be assumed that these fantasies only kind of progressed from there, like they never really went away. He then moves towards the category of a homicidal necrophile, as it appears that the main goal of many of his murders was in order for him to be able to have sex with the corpse. When talking about necrophilia, there are some possible explanations for why people choose to engage in this kind of behavior. One of them being that corpses cannot judge, reject, or disagree. So this might lead individuals who have a harder time maintaining social relationships to prefer corpses over humans since they just kind of don't have to deal with these emotions. Like they don't have to deal with the potential to be judged, rejected, any of that. So when looking at Dahmer and his lack of relationships and just kind of like his overall reclusive personality, it's not really hard to see why he would take the quote-unquote easy I put that lightly, sexual encounter rather than putting in this effort to try and like maintain a relationship with people when he already lacks people skills. It also should be mentioned that, as we've said, Dahmer had these kind of feelings of neglect and abandonment, and that may also have played a role into why he had these necrophilic tendencies because corpses could not leave him. So if he was having feelings or emotions or having sex with these corpses, they wouldn't be able to leave him after, and therefore he would not have these feelings of neglect or abandonment after. In the book, Minds on Trial, Great Cases in Law and Psychology, Charles Ewing and Joseph McCann detailed Dahmer's trial and the various psychological opinions that were presented during that trial. So during this trial, Dahmer was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, 
schizotypal personality disorder, and a psychotic disorder. So once again, this information comes from the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, and borderline personality disorder is described as the pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image, and emotions. This presents itself in various ways, but a couple of them being frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, a pattern of unstable interpersonal relationships, identity disturbance, self-damaging impulsivity, and severe disassociative symptoms. So when looking at these various presentations and their connection to the case of Dahmer, there are some very clear connections. The main one would be, as we've said time and time again, Dahmer's fear of abandonment, which is likely linked to his childhood and the lack of attention that he received from his parents, plus the literal abandonment of his mother after the divorce when she just left him at the house unsupervised for months on end. This fear of abandonment kind of ties into his lack of interpersonal relationships because his relationship with his family was strained, as we have mentioned time and time again. But Dahmer was also basically just kind of refused to make friends because he was scared that he would be betrayed by these people or that he would be abandoned by these people. So rather than putting him in a vulnerable situation like that, he just decided to avoid those relationships in their entirety. Not only did he avoid these relationships, but Dahmer also tended to disassociate himself from others, and he was often very reclusive and quiet. You could say that this was in part because he didn't want to make these relationships. You could say it was a consequence of not having these relationships, but either way, he was very isolating of himself. Dahmer did have some semblance of an identity disturbance when he was first kind of coming to terms with his sexuality, like that whole thing. But more so, he was plagued with issues of like poor self-image, and he partook in a lot of self-damaging behaviors, such as sex, drugs, and as we talked about, alcohol. As defined by the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, schizotypal personality disorder is the pattern of social and interpersonal deficits marked by the discomfort of or inability to form close relationships, as well as cognitive distortions and possible eccentric behavior. So this one's kind of similar to the borderline personality disorder, but this one does have a couple differences that just kind of make it a little more, that distinguish the two from one another. So some presentations of this personality disorder include odd beliefs that influence behavior or are inconsistent with societal norms, unusual perceptual experiences, inappropriate or constricted emotions, odd or eccentric behavior or appearance, and the lack of close friends or confidants. So as we mentioned with the borderline personality disorder, Dahmer lacked the majority of conventional relationships, so he especially would lack those that would be considered like close friends or confidants. Like If he didn't have a friend group in general, there was no way he was just going to have one person he would tell everything to, especially with what his behavior was and what it was he was doing. Dahmer also exhibited inappropriate or constricted emotions in the sense that he rarely ever showed emotions period like he was generally very close off he would disassociate himself from most situations and this disassociation and isolation just kind of left no room for any sort of emotional response in light of odd beliefs and those that influenced Dahmer's behavior and those that were inconsistent with societal norms His necrophilic fantasies, cannibalistic desires, and just kind of overall criminal behavior are like a clear example. Like those go against everything that most people in society believe in. Like he just got complete disregard for societal norms as well as just like human life in general. So that's a pretty obvious example of that. 
So when people think of Jeffrey Dahmer and other serial killers, they almost immediately identify these individuals as psychopaths. However, in recent years, clinicians and forensic psychologists have kind of moved away from the term psychopath, and they now refer to that set of traits and behaviors as a variation or a form of antisocial personality disorder. So once again, this information comes from the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5, and antisocial personality disorder is described as a pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others, which can be showcased through various traits and behaviors. These various traits and behaviors include failing to conform to social norms regarding lawful behavior, being deceitful, being impulsive, being irritable and aggressive, reckless disregard for the safety of self or others, consistent irresponsibility, and a general lack of remorse. So once again, when looking at how this connects to Dahmer, he clearly violated the rights and lives of many and had absolutely no regard for socially normative and lawful standards while doing so. Like, he was literally murdering people. Like, clearly he did not care what the law told him was right and wrong. He also exhibited consistent irresponsibility in both school and work, with both of which he had quit before finishing. He did hold a couple of jobs outside of the military, but none of them were really notable, and most of them were very short-term. But both school and work, he just never finished what it was he was going to do. Dahmer was also incredibly deceitful, especially when it came to his numerous run-ins with the law enforcement during his crime spree, because none of those he came in contact with had any inkling of what it was he was actually doing. Like, he was lying straight to these police officers' faces, and no one ever thought anything twice about it. Like, they just, like, took his word for it. He was easily able to manipulate those around him and get them to believe that what he said and did was the truth. He also showed absolutely no remorse for his victims following the murders or even years later after he'd been caught for the murders and like confronted with the survivors of the victims, the victims' families, like anything. Like he just showed no remorse for his actions. So based on this criteria, it could be concluded that Dahmer was in fact a psychopath. As I mentioned earlier, forensic psychology is never a set in stone matter. It's simply the act of a trained professional offering their expert opinion on a given matter. Granted, they do use their educational background and their knowledge to make the best conclusion that they can in any given case, but it's nothing that is for sure. Like, there's always some things that could be different or varying opinions based on different areas of specialty. So it's always just kind of more of an opinion rather than a fact. With that being said, this paper is in absolutely no way a formal psychological evaluation of Dahmer. It's just more so an analysis of what forensic psychologists have concluded about him, as well as what could be inferred given the details of his life and his crimes and those in relation to clinical diagnoses. Regardless of the evaluation and analysis, there's absolutely no denying that Dahmer is a monster and that he took the lives of 17 innocent men for no apparent reason. His crimes are chillingly gruesome and they offer a peek into the darker side of the human psyche as well as this kind of consequential behavior like what comes of that with that being said we will wrap up this episode of nefarious as well as the last episode of my thesis project at this point i am unsure yet if i will continue with nefarious following this episode and following the completion of this project so as of right now we have reached the end But I have had so much fun creating these podcast episodes and researching all of these cases. 
I hope that you guys did enjoy them as well. And who knows, maybe there will be more to come in the future. I mean, come on. I could talk about hundreds more topics and cases if I wanted to. I could do this for hours if I wanted to. But just for now, I wanted to say thank you for listening. Not just to this episode, but to the entirety of this project and all the episodes that I've done beforehand. It was amazing and I couldn't have done it without you guys. So as of right now, that is all I have for you. So bye guys.